This is a relay project. Seriously starts now. Here's Sapria and Ryan. Yo, yo, it's Wednesday, August 10th, and you're listening to Seriously with Sapria and Ryan. I am Sapria DeVetti in Toronto. I'm Ryan Jesperson in Edmonton. Yeah, and Ryan, normally we start the show, I run through a list of what happened uh, in the week that was from the last time we would have, you know, done this, but I needed to make enough time for this I know UCP where you're going. Essay <laughs> contest and the win and the third place, not the winner, the third place essay because it's just bonkers. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of? Yeah, you know, can I can I say can I come in with a hashtag here that says something like "Not my Alberta" or "Not <laughs> all Albertans"? I don't know for people that haven't for the six people in the country that haven't heard about this story yet. <laughs> Uh, technically not the government of Alberta. Nobody wants to take responsibility for this right now, but put it this way. The Legislative Assembly pushed out a contest, an essay contest for young women aged 17 to 25 to talk about what their vision is for the province and most notably what they would do if they were an elected MLA, a member of the Legislative Assembly. And the third place prize, like you said, not the winner, but still on the podium, the bronze medal winning essay has captured a few people's attention. I'm laughing because I'm still so appalled. Uh, I think I'm laughing so I don't cry, like I said. But let me put a few excerpts in front of our Seriously subscribers. Uh, here are some quotes, some real quotes from this essay, under 500 words. While it's sadly popular nowadays to think Albertan children are unnecessary and we can import foreigners to replace ourselves, I know, this is a sickly mentality that amounts to a drive for cultural suicide. And of course, that's called the great replacement theory, but I'll go on. Uh, quote, <laughs> to try to promote that women break into careers that men traditionally dominate is not only misguided, <laughs> but it's harmful. Like politics? And, 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 and here's and another media? one. Here's, here's, yeah, media. here's another one. Uh, and this is the idea that everybody's talking about, Sapria. It's time to reward families, quote, reward families with medals to symbolize their valuable achievement of having two or more children. This the bronze medal winner in the Her Vision Inspires essay contest. So do we know who was on the panel like to judge this? Nobody wants to take responsibility. Okay. So Alberta's Associate Minister for Children's Services just recently appointed. Says, says I, I don't know how this thing went. She says, I was not responsible except for here's the deal. The organization that they're trying to pass this off on, the Commonwealth Association of something or other, says, no, 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 it was her. She's the chair of our judging <laughs> panel. Uh, the, the speaker of the Legislative Assembly says he's the one that ordered it be taken down from the website as soon as he heard about it uh, funny enough sapria nobody seems to know who's in charge of handing out this bronze medal to this racist homophobic transphobic you know it's being described as a fascist essay my question is like quite honestly is it real or is this satire is somebody sitting back and laughing about this entire thing i mean if they are then like great you know sort of joke on all of us, I suppose. But I mean, it's still out there and it's still one. So irrespective of whether the intent was to put it out as satire, it's, I don't think it was received that way from the judging panel, right, as they decided to put it up on the podium. And 
I don't know, like to your point about it being like somewhat fascist, like it, didn't 1938 Germany literally give medals or give prizes to women who had multiple children? Like it's I, the I Nazi feel like playbook. Is, yeah. I mean, the idea that that the idea that uh, uh, Johnny, can we call up the first quote again where it says something about like the, the Albertan, like it really focuses on the Albertan families. And it says we need to it says it's 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 sadly popular to think Albertan children are unnecessary and we can import foreigners to replace ourselves i mean that's not even subtle no, no, that's white replacement shit that's yeah. that's like straight up white replacement shit. people are yeah. saying yeah this has like this has like hints of racism it's like no it's just like straight up yeah. racist uh so obviously i think that this is just another law i mean this is just another entry it's another bullet point if anybody's keeping a spreadsheet or a google doc in the long list of ways that this government has embarrassed this province and actually quite frankly damaged its brand and so i, I suppose alberta will recover from this but yeah, we're yeah. just a little self-conscious that the rest of the country's snickering at us well, and like we don't need to beat a dead horse, but the last thing I'll say on this is that I really do want to pour one out for like all of the female UCP staffers right now or anybody who works on the in, on the back end of things because it can't be easy for them. Um, and I'm sure they're all appalled. At well, this, and just at the vast, vast majority of them are appalled. Think of how busy they're going to be as well when they have to start yeah. handing out all these medals, right? Because it's <laughs> a lot of people with two plus kids in the province. That's a, that's a lot of bronze that's going to be heading out. Hey, you know, our top story last week was about Canada's growing health care crisis. And, and this opens up an interesting question. What do you do when the system is woefully understaffed? We'll talk about this in a few minutes. And you desperately need to hire people. Sometimes a situation like this can lead to rush hiring where you don't train or verify credentials as well as you should. Yeah, and it could actually lead to tangible situations like the one we saw in British Columbia in 2021, where a nurse was actually working with forged credentials. Brutal. And when you're understaffed, you know, verifying credentials and providing that sort of best in class training is actually even more important. It's even more important not to cut those corners. And if you need help with training in a regulated industry, then you need to know about We Know Training. We Know Training is not just a standard LMS platform. They specialize in high stakes training for associations, regulators, governments, and credentialing bodies with the highest degree of quality and trust. Yeah, that's right. So to give you some examples, they work with credentialing partners like hunter educators or, or licensing organizations, medical associations, liquor and cannabis, retail worker training for provincial regulators. They're doing accelerated or accredited training for licensed professions like real estate, insurance, financial planning, and many more highly regulated industries where high quality training really matters. Supriya, we've seen a ton of news stories in the past where people in these really important industries have suffered from online training that's just simply not designed or delivered in the most trustworthy way. And of course, it's a huge risk for the public, right? It compromises people's safety. It's imperative that this type of training is delivered by experts. Uh, for the last 17 years, We Know Training has helped hundreds of North American associations and organizations deliver the highest quality training and testing solutions. And that's why We Know Training is your ideal training partner if protecting the public is part of your mandate. You can learn more on their website today at weknowtraining.ca. The lead. So Ryan, unless you were like under a rock this week, um, you probably heard of the news that Mar-a-Lago, uh, Donald Trump's private Florida residence, 
was raided by the FBI. They had a, a warrant. Uh, you know, he was tweeting about it, basically saying they even went into my safe, like <laughs> as if that's not like the fucking first place you go when you're doing a warrant um, and a search. Uh, but like whatever, uh, he, you know, he's already sort of fundraising off of this, which again, unsurprising. A lot of talk about him now being galvanized to, you know, announce even sooner about his run for 2024. And I don't really want to get into it from like the American angle, because like there's, you know, they'll talk their own politics and they have their own set of issues they have to deal with. I figured for our purposes, what's really interesting is like to talk about this in, you know, the Canadian context, because it's not as though we're, you know, immune to what happens around us, particularly in the U.S. And it's not as though we don't here um, in Canada have similar, I don't want to say the same, but similar or analogous sort of information ecosystems. If you are on, um, you know, the right side of the political spectrum, your information ecosystems would be similar to those that are on the right side of the political spectrum in the U.S. And the same goes for the left side, right? And the left in the U.S. So I, I don't know. It's, um, I, would, are you like thinking about this in terms of like, well, if this guy runs again, then it's like we have all of this stuff bleeding over onto our side um, in the lead up to 2024? Yeah, well, one of the things I thought was really interesting in that statement from Trump as that raid was being carried out and he talked about it was the radical left Democrats that were doing this. He talked about how this was essentially an assault on democracy, the weaponization of the justice system. And then he specifically spells out they don't want me running for president again in 2024. And it just reiterated to me this might be an obvious statement, but it reiterated to me this is not a, a chapter that America is closing or has closed. This is a book, a story that continues to write itself, at least if Trump gets his way. Now, of course, this could have an outcome that would preclude him from running for president like i don't know if he's in jail but at the same time you see the reaction from a lot of canadians on the right and you look at a lot of the political momentum in canada right now you know yeah. we talk about in our neck of the woods in the west in the province of alberta the united conservative party's leadership race whoever wins that is going to be premier and it's the hard right candidates that appear to be the front runners right now you take a look at the momentum behind the polyev campaign i mean his team in selling memberships has literally doubled the membership in the Conservative Party of Canada right now. And who's he appealing to? And what policies is, is he really putting in front of people? They are the more right-leaning or even in some circumstances far-right type conversations that he's having. We don't know a lot about what the policies would look like. That's part of the problem or some of the criticism around the Polyev campaign right now. But fair to say that this is not something that North Americans have put behind them probably not even close how about you yeah no i don't think so either and look i want to like state this from the onset because i don't think it's unsurprising that right-leaning people in canada would support or generally be more supportive of right-leaning candidates in the u.s right but i think we need to contextualize this with trump and the gop um not really being normal right-leaning political actors or players i mean they're you know trying to dismantle democracy or are willfully blind for to it um, and I mean, essentially, they're kind of like the Alex Jones's party where they're just like spewing out conspiracy theories and the like. And, you know, it's interesting because Trump is not very popular in Canada, um, but it tends to get a little bit more complicated, you know, once you start factoring in party affiliation to that. 
And so we, you know, let like Leger has done polling on this. Um, Angus Reed, for example, has done polling that like 41% of conservatives believe in the big lie, uh, you know, meaning that like the election was stolen from, from Donald Trump, you know, that's compared to like 95% of liberals and 92% of NDP supporters who think that the election was fair. Um, Trudeau for treason, you know, has been a thing for years now and has been reinvigorated post-freedom convoy. Canada has our own extremist problem, by the way, right? Like, I mean, there's been multiple reports with respect to like extremists um, on the far right kind of infiltrating military and police. And there's lots of documented right wing terrorist activity. And we punch above our weight and exporting, you know, myths and disinformation. So like all of this stuff matters. And what I worry about is that you're going to start to hear from those on the the right here about how like oh well this is just a distraction we're just trying to distract from real issues and like it doesn't matter what happens in the u.s but like of course it fucking matters and like if you're saying that like real people don't care about this shit then you're basically saying that like you know brown black other racialized canadians you know if you're jewish you're part of the lgbtq community um then we don't count as like real um, because like, we're the ones that are going to see the hate on the ground when the shit tends to spike. I, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around the possibility, the very real possibility that the president that literally orchestrated, cooked up and fanned the flames of the January 6th insurrection, the attack on the Capitol ha- tried to have, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you can be my check and balance, Sapri, yeah. if you think that I'm stepping over the line and suggesting that that he made an effort to have his vice president killed. Yeah. Like, that's not outrageous to suggest, right? It's, it's not absurd for me to put it out there. The president that orchestrated and fanned the flames of all of this right before he left office, right before his successor was inaugurated, could be back in the Oval Office four years later. And that blows my mind. I don't know the message it sends to Americans. I don't know the message America sends to the rest of the world. And we, as their closest neighbor and most important trading partner, this is something we can't ignore. No, it can. And, you know, like the, some of the guardrails that has protected us, right, that's protected Canada generally, like our conservatives being, you know, more principled and not really giving into that anti-vax or anti-mask crowd. I mean, that's gone. Um, respect and faith in our institutions. I mean, that's dwindling and that's like plummeting. And, you know, the liberals have a lot of shooting themselves in the dick uh, on this front um, and are like not helping that area. Um, If you think of like faith in government or courts or public health, right, like all of this stuff, you have inflation and economically anxious middle class and, you know, those working hard to join it um, and people that are priced out of middle class. Like so all of these guardrails that Canada had going for it that like gave us a little bit of insulation from a lot of this shit, like all of that is gone. And so anyway, I don't want to catastrophize anything, but I think it's important that we at least acknowledge the fact that their politics impacts ours. And we need to figure out how to either mitigate that or, you know, essentially not be like them. Yeah, especially if you look at the trend or maybe it's just a sort of a human tendency that if that if something afflicts you and for some people that would be a rise in interest rates or for some people it, it, it would be what's happening with inflation. A lot of people, like you said, are being priced out of homes or they're going to be priced out of their current homes yeah. uh, for a lot of people with mortgages coming up for renewal, people on variable rates. And, and that's just one piece of the pie that we're looking at. The politics of anger give people an opportunity, and it, it's smoke and mirrors, and and quite frankly, it's misleading people. Uh, but it gives people an avenue to focus or channel their anger. Right? These politics of anger can can really lead to a 
to a populace or at least an element of the population that's in a position uh, to do some pretty terrible stuff. And we've seen it happen in the United States. We've seen it to a certain degree happen in Canada. And it's not unrealistic to suggest that we could see the seeds of it starting to grow, starting to flourish again. And it's something we all need to pay attention to. Also, there's this. Hostile work environments for journalists. It's front and center again in front of Canadians is some pretty prominent ones. Rachel Gilmore at Global, Erica Eiffel. And, and I mean, Saba, when you take a look at what Saba Aziz has been talking about as well, these emails they've been receiving, some of the messages from members of the public, from real life humans, horrific stuff, Sapri. And unfortunately, I know that you can relate. Yeah, I mean, I, I really can. Uh, so for those that don't know, I mean, I left my talk radio gig uh, because of, you know, threats of rape and violence that were directed towards my then 13-month-old daughter. Um, and it just wasn't worth it for me anymore to continue in that sort of environment. But I think what really gets to me right now is how, you know, I left my gig in like late 2020. It's August of 2022. And like the same shit is still happening. Uh, to your point, these three journalists, Rachel Gilmore, Saba Aziz, and Erica Eiffel, uh, seem to be on the receiving end of like a coordinated hate campaign. Um, and like newsroom leadership needs to step the fuck up right? And it's not like we don't know what to do here. Um, there are outlets that get it. There are outlets that know what they're doing. A very good example is Defector Media in the States. So just to give folks a, a bit of, you know, context of what they do, the company um, will provide expenses for the person or the journalist on the receiving end of the harassment. They'll provide alternate housing if they deem that necessary. They offer paid time off uh, as you're you know, being inundated with all sorts of hate. They will help you work with law enforcement. They'll provide you legal help. And they can even provide a proxy who can, and this is a quote, temporarily manage a targeted employee's social media accounts. Um, this is all stuff that if there's a will, there's a way to do it if, you know, newsrooms wanted to invest in this sort of thing. But I mean, quite frankly, I, I don't know if they want to do any of this, because yeah. if they did, wouldn't they have already done it? Well, you you take a look at some of the advocacy that these three journalists in particular have, have undertaken and, and their front facing stuff. I can't imagine the stress that they encounter privately. But but, you know, Saba and Erica hosting a, a Twitter space just a short time ago and uh earlier this week and i know there's been a lot of interest in that rachel filing a complaint a report with the ottawa police and making that public she recorded the call if people didn't catch it on twitter you have to uh her experience there at calling it negative would be an understatement so there's the stress they encountered there's the stories we're not hearing about of, of other journalists in particular uh, women and, and women of color more specifically in their professions there's the stress they encounter in the reality right now. What about the next generation, right? What about uh, the storytellers of tomorrow? Well, this is a thing, and I don't know how you convince the next generation to go into journalism and to want to do this. And I've been, you know, very blunt about this. I don't know what to tell younger female journalists, particularly if they're racialized, um, how to go about this. Because I mean, I sort of tapped out, right? And so I feel like I don't really have much of a leg to stand on. Um, but more than anything, it's like you do need to prioritize your own safety and your own mental well-being. And I don't know if being in journalism anymore is is that is is conducive to that. And I and I think like if we're talking about 
what, whose stories get told and what kind of news is being covered and what is being ignored. Um, that's when you really do need a diverse set of, you know, journalists and voices and editors and producers, et cetera, et cetera, to ensure that the stories that are being told are reflective of, you know, what this country looks like. So when we talk about solutions, like what's the solution if we were to look to the Canadian public, if we were to look to these media conglomerates and the big corporations, if we were to look to police or elected Ugh. representatives, people with platforms. What do you think would be a couple steps? Why don't we start with the big media companies? I mean, what would you like to see? Where do you think they're dropping the ball or or acting insufficiently right now? Well, I mean, I, I laid out what Defector does. I think one of the other things that can be done quite easily is um, just ensuring that journalists aren't, you know, if they're receiving a ton of hate um, and they're on the, you can tell when your inbox is being inundated. Um, I don't know, maybe like cybersecurity of those giant media companies can sort of like step it up and help uh, track down some of those IP addresses. I know, for example, that a lot of them are sent using these email um, platforms that are anonymous and that are harder to track. They aren't based in Canada. Um, but it's not like it's impossible to sort of work with a cybersecurity team to, to track that down. And in a lot of cases, the email platforms themselves will be like, yeah, just uh, this is how you work with the ex government, because that's where we're located, um, or the ex you know, police force, that's where we're located. So please get your local law enforcement to get in touch. But I mean, to, the, the bigger issue here, I think, is that police agencies and law enforcement simply do not take this seriously. And we know that, for example, this fall, the government, the federal government is going to be proposing an online harms bill. And I really want people to pay attention to how that debate's going to go, because I'm pretty sure and almost can guarantee that police agencies and law enforcement are going to be claiming they need all sorts of extraordinary powers to help keep them safe. And quite frankly, that's bullshit because they're not keeping us safe right now as it is mm. against this sort of stuff. I think you're making a really important point, too, about how these are coordinated attacks orchestrated attacks these aren't just one-offs these aren't just lone wolves at the same time all it takes is one person that, that's yeah. unstable or that's malicious or motivated enough to turn the the vitriol and the the poisonous words into action and and then we've got a total disaster on our hands this is something that needs to be taken way more seriously yeah. And let me just say the last thing I'll say on this is I think what a lot of people don't tend to realize or don't tend to get is that they tend to think that this is just regular hate, that this mm -hmm. is just regular old fashioned people being mean to you on the Internet and you just can't handle it. Or it's like you just can't handle a conservative viewpoint or a, a viewpoint that's different of your own. And that's also bullshit. OK, there's a very big difference. And I apologize for my language here, but there's a very big difference between somebody calling me a packy cunt and somebody calling me a packy cunt who deserves to be raped and somebody who's calling me a packy cunt who deserves to be raped in the parking lot of my empty garage as I pull in to the morning show, right? right. Like those are all differing threats. Those are all gradations. Um, and the threats need to be dealt with. Um, and it's not the same as saying like, oh, you're, you're bad at your job or I hate the journalism you do when you are being, you know, your actual physical safety is being threatened. And there's a reason why during when I was, you know, host of the morning show, my go-to security was my co-host, Matt Gurney, um, because he's a big guy, you know, he's, he's six, four, you don't really want to fuck around with him. Um, and I felt safer having him walk me to and from the car uh, to the garage and into the studio more than I did, you know, having to go to the police because they don't take this shit seriously. And I, I had a death threat come into my cell phone on an unblocked number 
And I told the police about it and they were just kind of like, okay, I don't know what you want us to do. Um, but sure, file a file a report. So you have like a, a paper trail, but like, I don't know. It's like, we're waiting for something terrible to happen. Yeah. And file, a, file a report. So we know who to go talk to when we find your body in the parking lot Fuck. outside the yeah. radio station. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Seriously. Is this not unprecedented though, this situation minister? No, I'm sorry. It is not. So when there are ebbs and flows of high, uh, high incidents of people who are taking vacation, appropriately so, then we need to make sure that we have the, the systems in place. What? <laughs> so uh, that was Cynthia Mulligan of City News asking the Ontario Health Minister Sylvia Jones whether or not this situation was unprecedented. You heard her say no. Uh, that's fucking ridiculous. Of course, it's unprecedented. You, you know, obviously, there have been healthcare crunches before. Um, our system generally tends to operate at like max capacity. And this, a lot of what we're seeing right now has been building up for years and years and years. And you can't solely lay the blame at this current government. All of that is true. But until we can start recognizing the fact that we are in a crisis and that this is in fact unprecedented, so we need everyone to sort of start proposing solutions, we're not going to fucking get anywhere. Has the word unprecedented lost its meaning? Does it actually Maybe. even matter if a politician or, or, or a health executive or an associate minister or for that matter, a doctor or a nurse? Maybe they matter a little bit more. But invoking the word unprecedented now, it just feels like it's probably the most diluted power phrase <laughs> That we've seen in the last two years. I mean, that's everything a, is kind a of very unprecedented now. So maybe yeah, it doesn't yeah. even matter. All that really matters, and you and I have talked about this ad nauseum, all that really matters to people is that whether or not you acknowledge that there's a healthcare crunch or a healthcare crisis, when you or your loved one experiences it, that's what you care about. And that's what people are seeing en masse, whether they're waiting for surgeries or trying to get a family doc or waiting in triage or whatever the circumstance is. And we see evidence of it across the country. And Ontario certainly is no exception. Yeah, it isn't. But, the, you know, you also raised a good point that we're seeing it across the country. And I really do want to reiterate this because I think, you know, conservatives in Ontario are right to be annoyed when they look over to British Columbia and they don't see Horgan being dragged to the same degree that Ford is, um, because, you know, irrespective of partisan stripe, various premiers have led their healthcare system to the crisis point that we're seeing right now. Um, and it has nothing to do with political affiliation. It has nothing to do with, you know, partisan affiliation. It's just the way it is. But we need to figure out how to get out of this. And, you know, gaslighting the public is not the way to do that. We promise every week on Seriously that we're going to cut through the noise and help people make sense of the news around them. So maybe you can do that for me. Help me make sense of the fact that Doug Ford won a big majority government nine weeks ago yeah. and everybody's pissed at him what happened there I, nobody talked about health care i That's guess what happened there yeah we talked about health care in the context of like you know affordability i think for the most part like dental care um pharmacare as well came up mental health supports which are all important i, I don't want to distract from that or detract from that but like it, 
I don't know. It's like we were just walking in blind. Everyone was just, it was the start of the summer. Um, you know, the weather was starting to get warm. Nobody really paid attention. Um, I would also, you know, I, I would have to say that political legacy media in this province didn't do the best of job of covering the crunch. I mean, it's not as though doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers on the ground weren't already sounding the alarm in the lead up to the election and voting day. It just didn't get talked about. Yeah. It almost feels if there's like a uh, I'm coming up with this metaphor on the fly. So work with me. I love it. But if there's a storm rolling in, you know, if there's like a big tornado rolling in and then everything starts to get chaotic, you know, the 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 farm trucks start blowing around and then you see cows lifted 100 feet in, and then you see a combine fly by and somebody says, yeah, hey, heads up, there's a natural gas leak. Uh, this could be really bad. And everybody kind of goes, yeah, there's a lot going on right now. I'm sure there is a natural gas leak. You might not be wrong, but eh, it almost feels like that in a way. Healthcare crisis. But yeah, everything's in crisis right now. Maybe we've just reached this resting <laughs> state where in a way we're just trying to get through every single day crisis or not. Yeah. Fuck, that's a really depressing place to be. I don't want to end it like that. But you know what we should okay. do is maybe take a week off. Get back, find our calm. Hey, we'll spend some time with our families, and then we'll be back two Wednesdays from now with a fresh episode of Seriously. That sounds great. In the meantime, you can check us out at seriouslypod.com. You can connect with us on Instagram at seriouslypod, on Twitter at Sapria and Ryan. Um, and you can always email us as well, talk at seriouslypod.com. Yeah, like Sapria said, make sure you give us a follow, especially on Instagram and TikTok. Just killing it. And we love to hear about new subscribers. Sure appreciate when you rate the show, when you subscribe on YouTube, and when you tell your friends about what you heard right here on Seriously. Seriously is hosted by Supriya Dwavedi and Ryan Jesperson. Technical producer, John Hicks. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Lawrence Norlego. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Human resources, Lena Shepard. Voiceover by me, Tanji. Seriously is a relay project. For more, check out SeriouslyPod.com.